0: Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben ohara Burr. Well, the Stampede starts tomorrow, and we get a preview from the morning show co hosts on Country 105 in Calgary. From bands to the Stampede breakfast, bull riding to Black Forest mini donuts, we check it all out, everything that's on offer. Are crickets the answer to providing the world with much-needed protein? One young Canadian CEO is banking on it with the world's largest cricket processing facility in London, Ontario. We get the latest of what has been a cataclysmic 48 hours of British politics, culminating in the resignation of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But first, a BC woman shares her horror story of how a much-anticipated vacation to Newfoundland turned into a trip from hell, thanks to cancelled Air Canada flight that stranded her first in Montreal, and then in Toronto for five days in total, before she finally gave up and flew home. Well, we begin tonight with a story we've been talking about a lot recently, frustrations with passengers and advocates accusing Air Canada of giving them the runaround when it comes to refunds and compensation for delayed or canceled flights. Uh, One traveler is told she'd get a $60 e-coupon rather than the direct refund she was entitled to for a baggage delay. Um, And on Tuesday, the airline canceled a flight from Nashville to Toronto, citing a technical issue, but the same plane took off for Boston an hour later. Air Canada says it abides its obligations under the Passenger's Rights Charter. We've also been hearing a lot of horror stories from people trying to cross the country, trying to get from point A to point B to point C, and running into absolute terrible issues as they try to do that, specifically in some of the country's biggest airports, specifically Toronto. Well, a BC woman is back home in the Okanagan after what she calls a travel nightmare. After a flight from Kelowna, she was stuck at the Toronto International Airport for five days. It all began on June 14th when she, like so many of us who are heading out on a holiday, boarded an Air Canada flight from Kelowna to Montreal. And Carla Weber joins us now to tell us more. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. So tell me about this trip. I mean, was this the first thing you had planned after a couple of years? And where were you headed?
1: Well, that's right. Um, I have been very lucky to have traveled the world extensively um, over the years, uh, extensively over the years. And I just wasn't able to get my head around COVID. And I thought, well, you know, the only province territory I've not visited is our Labrador, Newfoundland. So back right. in the fall, I booked a tour to Newfoundland. And I went on Aeroplan points. And um, as you said, I did leave. um, My my day started at 4 a.m. on Tuesday, June 14th. It was an hour-and-a-half ride to get to the Kelowna Airport. We did leave on time. It was Air Canada. And I got to Montreal um, probably mid-afternoon. And, you know, there might have been a tail time at that point because we were stuck on the tarmac. There was not sufficient ground crew that was able to bring us in um, to, to the walkway and that. So we waited a good hour on that. And then it just went
0: downhill from then. So from Montreal, you then wind up in Toronto.
1: Yeah. So that night in Montreal, we were told that our connecting flight to Newfoundland, which was going to supposed to be later on in that evening, it was cancelled. So we were able to get um, a hotel, got in the hotel about 2 o'clock Wednesday morning showed up at the airport in Montreal Wednesday morning, waited about eight hours for our flight. That would be the second night, which was Wednesday. It was cancelled again. Then we were told that we might have a better chance of getting to Newfoundland East by going to Toronto, which was West, and then going from there. Uh, They put us on a a scheduled 5, 10 a.m. flight on Thursday morning. They cancelled that. We got out on a 9 o'clock flight that Thursday morning with, again, for the third night in a row, a scheduled flight to Newfoundland that Thursday evening, which they cancelled again. Shortly after they cancelled that flight, which was three nights in a row, I got a text that said... That flight would go on the Saturday. Now, keep in mind that I've basically been in transit since Tuesday.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I'd had it. Uh, Physically, mentally, emotionally, I was absolutely exhausted. Um, Luggage was lost by Air Canada, both in Montreal and Toronto. I finally did get it. And I ended up um, booking a flight to WestJet. And I arrived home at about 10 p.m. on Saturday, June 18th, which was five so, full days later.
0: So from Tuesday, 4 a.m., you leave home, you get back on Saturday at 10 p.m. And the furthest you made it, furthest east you made it was Montreal. Montreal, uh, correct.
1: Uh, and two of those it? nights, I was able yeah. to have a bed in a hotel. The rest of the night, I slept on the floor or in chairs at the airport. People were spread and sleeping on tabletops in the restaurant, at the restaurant. They were sleeping on the floors. Um, It was the most horrific and traumatic airport and airline experience I've ever experienced
0: in my life. And you've been, as you mentioned earlier, you've traveled a lot. So you know how, you know your planes, you know how this all works. What, What kind of communication did you have um, over your days in Toronto as, you're, as these flights are being cancelled? Are you being told or are you just getting these alerts saying, because I, I booked well, a, a flight recently too, and all you do is get, you get an email that says, we're sorry we've changed our, your itinerary again.
1: Oh, yeah, and the texts and that that come in, um, that last third night in a row, um, the gate was changed, I'm thinking a minimum of four, possibly five times in a two-hour period. And you know, at this point, when you've been basically been living in the airport since Tuesday, you know, you're sitting in the waiting lounge. You know, your shoes are off. You might be having a snack. Your bags are there, and then you have to pick up and run. And literally, it was four to five gate changes in a in a two hour period. And then again, it never it never left.
0: Did you have any communication with the airline at all? Were they were they trying oh, to make sure very, you were okay?
1: Very little. Um, there is such a poor. Um, Accountability to Air Canada, and you know, I do not fault the staff that are working there. I truly don't. It's the um, the higher ups in Air Canada that that have done this, and in between the um, the catering staff that is on the plane, to the ground crew, to the customer service, and I say service very lightly at this point, to the agents at the counters. There's so few people, and everybody is so frustrated and tired, and You know, there's not enough people to to deal with what they have done with booking all these people on the flights that they can't equip.
0: And I guess you had no notice, right? I mean, it would have been nice perhaps when you were leaving uh, or before you left for them to say, listen, there are some issues with your connector flight. Would you like to make, make a decision as to whether you're going to embark on this journey or not? Well,
1: interesting that when I booked that flight back in the fall, I had a minimum of six changes on the itinerary from Air Canada. Right. Six times, they changed my flight time and that. And coming home, they ended up having to put me through Vancouver, where I had to stay and pay for a hotel, which, of course, never actually did happen, because I never did get to Newfoundland. Um, so, yeah, they changed it uh, a m- multiple amounts of times from when I originally booked it in the fall. And did the you sad have any part tra- is, I, Yeah. Sorry, the sad part is I never did get to Newfoundland. Yeah. It, it was no, I know. Of
0: you never fall. got your... No. Yeah. The... And any, any response from them now? Have you heard from them at all since?
1: I have not. I, I, the only um, generic um, online response I got was we received your message. I did file a claim with Air Canada and they have got 30 days, which is going to be July 24th before they have to get back to me.
0: And obviously, I mean, in this, you did manage to stay in a hotel a few nights. But how much, how much money are you out? I mean, this was a plan. So you, obviously, you had all like many people. You had all kinds of things booked for oh, when I you did. arrived, and this is yeah. all that was all. You were a no show essentially, of course.
1: Yeah, my my tour alone in Nof- in New was fifty four hundred dollars. I'm um, fighting with Aeroplan because they won't credit me some of the Aeroplan points that I mean, I never did reach my destination. They're refusing to give me my Aeroplan points. From Kelowna to Montreal, um, I've had it out with Air Canada, with my insurance companies, um, Visa. Yeah, it, it's been uh, it's been a nightmare, an absolute nightmare.
0: We'll take a quick break, uh, Carla. I did want to. I mean, you made a really interesting point when I spoke to you first, uh, just about how there were a lot of other people in your position as well. Some who weren't going on holidays, holiday, some who were headed off to do many other things, and just how much more difficult it was for them too. Uh, we'll get to that right after this. We've been talking a lot the past little while on the show just about the chaos at some Canadian airports, and we're hearing a story now that just defines what's been going on. Carla Langweber began her journey uh, from Kelowna on June 14th. She made it as far east as Montreal. She was headed to Newfoundland, wound up back in Toronto, allegedly to catch a uh, quicker flight to Newfoundland, to St. John's, and then never made it any further. Five days later, landed back in, in BC and went home. Uh, Carla how are you how are you feeling about this now and 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 what advice do you have to travelers out there just about setting off on these holidays
1: well honestly um it's been about three weeks and I have had an emotional meltdown every day for those last three weeks I go from episodes of crying jags to just fits of rage and anger um I know it'll take time to get through it um, my advice to people, you know, don't fly right now. They, they say it's going to maybe pick up and things get back to normal in the fall. But I, I think your only other option, again, I mean, we're talking three summers in a row, is perhaps vacations. And I know the cost of gas and that. But, I mean, I even look at photos now of airports on the news or a Google link, and I just start to get um, wimpy. I, I just, uh, I am still such emotionally drained from this episode that, that happened
0: and yet, I mean, yeah. just how you describe it, you've traveled around the world, you know, you're obviously a seasoned, resilient traveler. What do you think it is I about this experience that, that touched you so so profoundly?
1: You know, I, I, I said in a fact that I felt like I was in a hostage situation. I felt so defenseless, so out of control. Um, a lot of my travels have taken me to third world countries, Eastern Africa, Cambodia, Laos, where I've traveled on my own. I have never felt so out of control and so helpless and so stranded as I have been in my own country in Toronto and Montreal. There was one point I did befriend um, a mother and her daughter from Alberta. They had personal reasons to get to Deer Lake and family. And at one point she said to me, we are stranded. We need to call the RCMP. That is how desperate we were.
0: At the two biggest airports in the country. Uh, yep. really. This is
1: yeah, you, absolute you, chaos. You know,
0: will you? Are you going to set out again? Are you? Are you? Do you feel like you'll be
2: able to? Pack yeah, your you bags know, and head out I, of you? I'm
1: pretty resilient. You know, for 66 years old, and I am pretty stubborn and darn determined. And there's still a lot of parts of the world that I've not seen that I would like to see. Um, But I mean, Air Canada has got to get their act together. And, you know, it is our airline. It is our Canadian airline. And I am just so absolutely disgusted with the whole bureaucracy of it that um, I'm livid. But then again, you know, I'm having breakdowns every day, too. So it'll take time to get over it. But um, I will not let this this lie. You can bet on it.
0: Yeah, what, what will you do? What, what are you hoping uh, to do and, and what will you like to see happen? And do you think it'll happen?
1: Well, I, I've actually, I, I did put a claim into to Air Canada and I know if that does not get um, fulfilled to my expectancy of what I expect, then I have another um, arm length that I can go to beyond there. Um, I have some minimal insurance and um, I, I did have two insurance companies. One will not cover me on what happened. The other one will. That, that's another story to get into. Um, but I've also talked to a lawyer. I, I have. I, my question was about actually um, doing a, a tort lawsuit against Air Canada. I, I am that livid right now.
0: You're that mad. Small claims court is one of the one of the issues that we were we asked this question of an expert of uh, this week actually or or late late last week and small claims court was one of the uh, options that he pointed out. I'm not sure that would work uh, in your case. Um, You must have been really looking forward to this trip, though. I mean, I I guess part of the problem too, or part of what the the impact of it was, that you would probably mentally prepared for this journey and how great it was going to be. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I'd thought about it since the fall. Well, I mean, all, all during COVID. You know, I normally take a major trip every year. And um, I, I thought, well, again, you know, like I said before, I've not been to Newfoundland, Labrador. I've heard fabulous things about it. So I thought, this is the trip for me now. And yes, I completely planned ahead of it in that. Um, the tour, like I said, I lost $5,400 on the tour. After the tour ended, I had a B and b booked in the southeast corner of Newfoundland for a week. Um, I mean, that's all, that fell through. That was three weeks of, of holiday time that's gone. But again, you know what? It was just a holiday for me. These other people, like I mentioned, that I befriended, and like I said, they had family issues to get back to. Another woman, her brother had died in Newfoundland. She was going back for, to the funeral. You know, these people all lost their flight. You know, whether they, I know the one couple, um, their mother and daughter, they, they flew back to Edmonton. They never did get to Newfoundland.
0: And you so, did the same, right? I mean, I, I read that interview that you that you gave, uh, that you did with Global News, and and you said, you know, you stepped up, and you were still hoping to get there, and then realized, it's, it's just, I'm just I, gonna w- go, I was, gonna yeah. Go. yeah.
1: You know, and I, when, you know, I looked at the days of the tour, and I thought at that point, you know, Air Canada was trying to get me out on the Saturday, well, that's like a, a third of the way into the tour already, you know, so there was no way, and I think at that point, on the Saturday, they were in Labrador, and you know, for me to 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 monetarily and, and physically get there at that point, and, and I was so exhausted. I mean, I was just so mentally, physically wrecked at that point. Um, thank God for WestJet. Um, I was able to get a very expensive ticket back on WestJet. Um, but um, you know, when I mentioned too on um, the, the the TV program, at that point in the check-in at WestJet, I absolutely collapsed. I I yeah. collapsed. I had my cart, my luggage, my great suitcase my purse on top of me and people were so good you know they came and they were picking me up and a WestJet agent was right there and put me in a wheelchair I mean that was just absolutely humiliating degrading and I'd had it at that point I was just drained
3: well, Carla,
0: I really hope you get to see Newfoundland because it is a lovely place. I've been, I've I family there, and, I've heard uh, that, yeah. and and I I hope you find some. I hope you get something that answers that you're looking for in the near future. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us tonight. I appreciate. It. I hope you. Uh, I hope. I hope you feel better.
1: And I thank you for airing my story and sharing it. Thank you.
0: Well, it's exciting times in Calgary these days. You see, Stampede starts tomorrow. It's Stampede time in Calgary. After quite a few, or a few at least, quiet years, the 10-day Summer Festival is back and big and again. It begins tomorrow from stampede breakfasts to bands, boots to bolo ties, bull riding to Black Forest mini donuts. You can find it all. There's even a stampede powwow at the Saddle Dome this year from July 12th to 14th. But all the events and food aside, what I really wanted to find out was what's the mood like? What's it mean to the city uh, to have the stampede back, really, as it was. So, who better to help us out than the co-hosts of the morning show on Calgary's Country 105, Josie Balca and Greg Reynolds, who join me now? Thank you so much for your time.
4: Of course.
0: Yeah, thanks for having us. So, uh, Josie, what's it like in Calgary when when the big show comes to town, so to speak? I know it's been a quiet few years, but this one feels uh, like it's back to back to uh, back to old times somehow.
4: Oh, yeah. It's been definitely quiet the last few years, but I didn't go up here. So the Calgary Stampede was my first experience in 2016. And it's pretty crazy what the city can turn into when uh, when it happens. And that sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. It's like the most incredible thing ever. Everybody's in a good mood. Everybody's ready to party. It honestly kind of reminds me of when our team is in the playoffs. Right. Like the, it's kind of hard to not be excited when the Stampede's in town.
0: So, Greg, what are you, what are your what are some of the the highlights you're looking forward to coming up uh, this in the next ten days? I guess there's lots going on, right?
5: There, there's lots going on. I would say in the next ten days, just being able to go do this again is probably the biggest highlight. But uh, there's so much to do at the Stampede tomorrow. We've got the parade for the first time in three years, where there's just going to be some really really magical floats and uh josie and i'll actually be doing our show live from there there's 10 days of concerts and rodeos and chuck wagons and great crazy food rides games agriculture whatever you want to do for 10 days you can do with a cowboy hat on
0: yeah i was gonna (laughs) that's one of my favorite things of course is to see politicians and others who don't normally wear that kind of stuff all of a sudden trying to squeeze themselves in or uh, wearing stuff Uh, any tips on on do's and don'ts when it comes to uh to wearing the proper stampede outfit
4: um, I would just say, don't spend a lot of money on a cowboy hat if you're going to have too many drinks and <laughs> I've definitely done that before, but honestly, just, I feel like a lot of people get like, Oh, I don't know if I want to dress like that. I don't know if people are going to judge me. Nobody is going to judge you. And that's honestly just such a cool opportunity to like change up your style a little bit and go a little bit out of your comfort zone and just kind of join, join the crowd, take the road most traveled.
5: Yeah. I, would, I, would, I, would, I would reiterate that statement. Exactly right, Josie. I would say the biggest don't of the Calgary Stampede is people that feel like, oh, I don't know if I, I should wear that. Go all out. Wear a yeah. cowboy hat. Get some boots. Wear a shirt you'll never wear for the next full year until you come back to Stampede. Like just, Just fully get into the spirit and you will absolutely love it.
4: Yeah, I agree
0: grab the bull by the horn so to speak that's, so that's, right. a mon- don't that's actually a Montreal.
5: Before, so get hurt.
4: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um there's a lot going i mean there's there's a lot of interesting music going on for people who think it's just an, an just a country uh music festival it isn't there's there's country no. and everything else in between isn't there
4: so basically there's concerts all over the place there's concerts at like our main like saddle dome stadium there's concerts at the stampede tents but even the stampede tents that are labeled as country tents some of them have other shows like like the cowboys Town, for example will have like electronic dance music shows and like i think there might be maybe one rock show but there's also something called the coca-cola stage where um artists play um for free and they're pretty big artists like i'm pretty sure the last time that the coke stage was open shania twain played there oh no cheryl crow played there and like It's just, it's a really cool opportunity to see a bunch of different new artists or old artists that you've loved for a really long time. You don't pay for it. And like 90% of those ones aren't even country music.
5: Well, this year, one of the major headliners at the Coke stage is Alexis on Fire, which is just a massive name, right? And, and somebody, Josie and I work on a country morning show, but we love bands that we grew up listening to, like an Alexis on Fire. Nelly's playing a massive tent. Uh, Marshmallow is going to be doing a massive show. Like, If you like music, it doesn't matter what kind of music you like. You'll love the entire feel of the Stampede.
0: Yeah, I saw that. Carly Rae Jepsen is in Cold War Kids, uh, Tokyo Police Club, Wolf Parade, Alicia Cara. Like that's that's a big lineup. That's a that's probably one of the biggest festivals of the summer. At least uh, at least on the West Coast, where West Ryan, it's one
4: of them for sure. We do have a a massive other country uh, concert that comes at the end of the year called Country at the end of the summer rather called Country Thunder. But like this and that. It's kind of hard to miss a good time when you live in Calgary.
0: How about just the, the, the rodeo itself? Because that's clearly the big one of the big draws, right?
4: Um, uh, I haven't spent a ton of time at the rodeo. I went a few years ago. And it's also just like such a cool experience if you've never been. But also it's it's a massive culture and it's a huge part of it for most people. And that's something that a lot of people look forward to. And also um, one of our artists that we play on our station is um, playing at the, what is it, Greg? The,
5: the grandstand show, Dean Brody. Yeah. Dean Brody, great.
4: Yeah, playing at the grandstand show too. So it's also, uh, it's the Chucks or the rodeo, but also entertainment every year as well. There's always like a headliner that plays.
5: But you're, you're right, Ben. The the rodeo is, I mean, that's what the Stampede was built on. And it is, the I, I believe it's still the largest purse in North America when it comes to professional rodeo. And you just see talented, brave, incredible athletes and and people risking their lives and putting their their bodies on the line. And man, you talk to anybody that's ever done rodeo about some of the injuries and some of the the stories they've got. You you need to spend a night with some people that have done rodeo and and just hear their stories and drink drink a beer with them and they'll entertain you for hours. They are so incredible to watch. And it is something that if you're going to be at the Stampede, Block off one day for the Chucks, the rodeo, and the grandstand show at least one day.
0: Kevin Costner's in town, is he not?
5: He is. He's our he Stampede is. Parade Marshal.
0: So, uh, we get to see him? Is that? Is that, uh, If, if, if I, I suppose he might be wandering around, maybe.
4: So, he basically will be, like, leading the parade. And then, because um, every year they name a different parade marshal. And then, also, he has a band. So he'll be playing a concert as well.
0: I didn't know he had a band.
4: Yeah.
0: (laughs) They're called Modern West. I should be following more closely. I've seen the show, the new show, but I haven't seen, uh, but I didn't know about the band. That's uh, great.
5: So Ben, we got a fun story for you about Kevin Costner. Did you know that his dad, who's now passed, before Yellowstone started, told him not to do the show because he'd lose his fan base? Really? Yep.
0: Interesting. That's crazy. Because it kind of, I mean, in a lot of ways, it kind of resurrected his career. No offense to Kevin Costner. He's made some great movies over the years, but it had been a while. I I thought Yellowstone was a great idea. Interesting.
5: Well, his dad said, said, his exact words were, you're going to lose your audience, fella. It's a naughty show. It's too (laughs)
3: naughty.
0: Aha. Now I get it. Now I get it. I'm speaking with Josie Balka and Greg Reynolds of Calgary's Country 105, morning show hosts there. We're talking about the Calgary Stampede, 10 Days of Fun it's kicking off. And uh, when we come back, one of the big draws, of course, uh, is the food. And we'll talk a bit more about the food and some of your personal experiences at the Stampede as well, because that's always uh, always interesting to find out perhaps some of the the G-rated ones. We'll get to those after this. My guests this half hour are Calgary country, Calgary's Country 105, Josie Balka and Greg Reynolds, co-hosts of the morning show there. We're talking about the Calgary Stampede, of course. It's coming up. It's been a few years since it's been able to be there in its full glory, but this year it returns. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've heard about the pancake breakfasts. And, uh, it's as if every organization in Calgary decides they're going to do the same thing and have these big events. But uh, what are they like?
4: So the Stampede breakfasts are an awesome part of it where a lot of different establishments around the city will have like breakfast that costs very little to nothing for you to go and just kind of enjoy and be in the spirit. And it's just, it's really cool because you wake up early and some of them are actually like breakfast for dinner, like late at night, but most of them are early during the day and you wake up early and you go participate in them. They're mostly during the beginning of stampede to kind of kick it off. Um, But they're definitely a ton of fun and also really good if you have like a family or kids or like, yeah, if you have, Kids in your life, it just gives you something to do with them as opposed to everything having to be like, go get drinks, go to a concert kind of thing. Yeah.
5: yeah. And what's really cool about the pancake breakfasts is there are a lot that will tie in line dancing, square dancing. Um, there's a, a little concerts. There's one big Stampede breakfast that happens every year. And major, major artists have sort of started their career there from Paul Brand to Lindsay L and they remember playing to a couple thousand people in a mall parking lot at a a stampede breakfast and now they're megastars. So it's just really cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, what is the fair? Just what you think it is. Is it straight up breakfast? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pancakes,
5: bacon, sausage. Yeah.
0: Sometimes
4: a little bit of rum if you want.
0: (laughs) 10 days of that, that, that'll do you. Yeah.
5: Yeah, Everybody takes a big, uh, a, a big diet and a, Had a big rest after the 10 days of Stampede.
4: (laughs) So the main food, though, wouldn't be like at the breakfast. The main food would be found on the midway. Those are the kind of foods that everybody really talks about, all the deep fried things. And every year they have new stuff that nobody's ever heard of before, like deep fried alligator and just weird, weird things that you would never really have the opportunity to try unless it were all in one place for a small amount of time. (laughs) Yeah. So that's kind of what people talk about the most. I, I was say.
0: reading some of the previews of sort of uh, the gla- glazed donut, grilled cheese sandwich, the honey habanero, ice pop, deep fried strawberries. Help me out here. Is that, is that what else can you get? Or what well, else have how, you about, have?
5: how about this? Try this one on. How about a Korean
0: squid ink cordnog? Wow. <laughs> I'm going to say <laughs> that I'll
4: let a friend try that one first.
0: <laughs> It's probably just a a, a corn dog that, that's black, right? Is that right?
5: Ah, uh, no, it's not no? full squid in it with squid ink. Wow,
0: interesting. Yeah. Have you had one?
5: Uh, crazy tongue pizza, which has slow braised Alberta cow tongue, pineapple, caramelized onions, and a little chipotle drizzle for you.
0: And that's a pizza. Yeah, and you haven't yeah. got a letter. From, you haven't got a letter from the uh, from the Italian consulate yet. Not <laughs> not yet. No, I <laughs> haven't. That's craft dinner soft serve, which I guess would be like a scoop of right.
4: No, it's ice cream that is flavored like craft dinner.
0: Good Lord. <laughs> <Because>
5: when, <laughs> when haven't you been sitting eating craft dinner and thought to yourself, I like this, but I'd like it more if it was
0: ice cream.
4: It's like cheesy ice cream. It's like if you froze your craft dinner and then licked it. Have you tried it? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that's what it is.
0: <laughs> I guess we'll have to find out. What what are you? What are some of your memories? Uh, uh, Jesse, you're saying, of course, you, that 2016 was your first uh, your first rodeo, so to speak. But uh, but what are some of your memories, both of you, of, of just good times at the Stampede o- over well, the years?
4: Since then, my favorite tagline is "This ain't my first rodeo" because it oh, wasn't, <laughs> but the first one was. So I could use that then as well. But honestly, it's just the like togetherness of the community, I would say, and also just the fact that. Everybody never agrees on anything, but 90% of people in Calgary agree that Stampede is awesome. And it's kind of just a time to let loose and not take everything so seriously. And I don't know, I just, I get excited for everybody to finally just come together for a minute in a kind of world where nobody ever agrees, especially over the last three years. I think it'll be nice because everyone's missed each other so much that people are just kind of like, whatever, put it all behind us. Let's just do this.
5: But do you have a memory, Josie, that stands out from your Stampede years so far?
4: Um, honestly, I just probably like what I just said, just the memory of everybody just coming together is my favorite thing about it.
0: The atmosphere, yeah. Greg, do you have any, uh, any, good, any good Stampede tales to share? Some
5: Stampede tales. Um, there are some pretty good ones. I would say one of my absolute favorite things, I used to bartend. Um, sort of during Stampede downtown and just watching the transformation of the city go from just your average city to complete cowboy town and guys you would see coming in all on their, on their lunch breaks in dress pants and dress clothes come in in uh, cowboy shirts and blue jeans and a cowboy hat and just everybody buys in, right? Um, but I, I would say just in terms of m- some of my memories, um, one of them would probably be eating deep fried oreos with uh the brothers osborne who's a pretty big country music band on their bus and having them be like what are these i'm like this is welcome to the calgary stampede
0: deep fried oreos those sound great i guess there's a lot of politics I mean, it looks like everyone is but there's two big political campaigns going on right now i guess a lot of them turn up too lots of people um there to take advantage of the big crowds and the festive the fe- festive atmosphere
4: Oh yeah. It's a good way to get your name out there if you need to. And everybody's there. So there's a chance to reach out to literally any audience that you are looking to reach out to. So it's a pretty cool way to do it.
0: What do you two get up to then for the 10 days? I imagine it's a bit like Christmas and new year's lands all at once for, for country one Oh five.
4: Greg, you want to take
5: this one? I was just trying to figure out what our schedule was. Uh, Well, Josie (laughs) and I pretty much will host a show. We host a show every day from 6 to 10. Tomorrow we'll be live from the parade till 11. And then a lot of our responsibility. Honestly, we are extremely spoiled. Our job is to basically introduce the bands and all the tents that you're going to watch. So all the uh, incredible Canadian country artists, including Brett Kissel tonight, we'll get to chat with them backstage and probably do some stuff on social media with them and then go on stage. And chat with a, uh, a crowd that's had a couple of Budweiser's and yeah. and get them to cheer really loud for the artists we bring on stage. It's It's a very, let's just say it's not a hard job,
4: it's a fun job. It's a cool job.
0: And any last advice to those who have not been to a Stampede before? Because I was talking to someone earlier today and they were saying, oh yeah, we have some folks coming in from Vancouver who've never been to Stampede. And there was a bit of a glint in his eye when he talked about it. Uh, any advice to the newcomers uh, who are, uh, as Josie was once experiencing, their first rodeo?
4: I would say just in, like enjoy everything and just know that it's, it's a little different than anything you've ever done before. Like if you've been to like, say you're from Toronto and you've been to the CNE or just uh, you, you're from Edmonton and you go to K Days, It's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be like that on steroids. Like it's the coolest thing ever, but only if you embrace it with your whole heart, <laughs> because your whole heart. there's a lot yes. going on. There's a lot going on.
0: Yeah. No standing on the wall and staring, right? None of that
4: yeah. it can't be a large You got to just roll right into the middle.
5: I would say it is a marathon, not a sprint. Don't go, don't go too hard too early. Uh, you got yeah. 10 days of this thing. Um, bring comfy shoes because if your cowboy boots start to give you blisters, you'll rue the day that you didn't bring back up shoes. And my biggest key of all, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. It gets hot on the ground, especially if you're indulging in a couple of cocktails, make sure you mix in the water.
4: <laughs> okay, Dad. <laughs>
0: Well, Josie Balka and Greg Reynolds, I wish you a wonderful Stampede. Thanks so much for sharing your experience with us uh, tonight. And yeah, happy Stampede. Thanks,
5: Thanks for having so. us. Thank you.
0: Well, this is a really interesting story. Um, so there's a facility that's... About to be opened in London, Ontario, that will be the biggest cricket processing facility in the world, apparently. At full capacity, uh, Aspire's facility is expected to house 4 billion crickets, 4 billion, and produce 13 million kilos of the insect each year. Uh, It's believed, again, to be the biggest cricket-specific processing facility in the world. Um, And they'll mainly use it for animal Food for pet food—that's where it's going now. But of course, uh, there are much bigger plans here. Um, it all began, oddly enough, uh, with McGill med students uh, nearly ten years ago now, and now it's transformed into this. Uh, and not only is it, uh, you know, going to open in London, Ontario, but there's also plans to go elsewhere and try to make crickets a source of protein. Um, in a world that needs more sources of protein, the chief chief executive officer there hopes it will tackle some of the planet's food insecurity programs. And joining me now is Mohammed Ashour. He's the CEO of Aspire, and he is joining me tonight from London, Ontario. Thank you so much for your time. What a fascinating project!
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, this is a, an exciting field that you're in. How did you how did you get involved? How did you find uh, crickets back in the day?
2: Yeah, you know, so I was actually a medical student at McGill University, and I came across this business competition that really spoke to me because it was, and an the idea behind it was to inspire entrepreneurs to build a business that at its very core addresses a major global challenge. And the challenge in 2013 was food security. And so I started, I put together a team from my program. We started doing some research. We realized that one of the biggest challenges facing our future is that we are quite, um, uh, you know, quite likely heading into a situation where we're going to see a dramatic increase in both population growth, which therefore means more, you know, people living longer, eating more food, which is a great thing. But on the flip side, also at the expense of the world actually having a lot less resources with which to produce food. And so the idea was to come up with a way to produce more protein using a lot less resources. And fundamentally, we found that that came down to how and what we we use as as a biological substrate For the protein production, if you look at most livestock production, which is where a lot of protein calories come from, a lot of livestock need a lot of land, water and energy in order to produce a fairly small amount of protein. So our thinking was, is there a source of protein? Is there an animal out there that uses a fraction of the amount of land, water and energy to produce a comparable amount of protein? And of course, that's when we came across the insight of insects and crickets in particular.
0: Which is not new, right? I mean, insects have been consumed forever and all over the place.
2: That's absolutely right. I mean, of course, for many of us here in Canada, I mean, obviously, we did not grow up with insects as part of our food culture. And, you know, to be clear, our focus and our our target market, at least, you know, in the in the near term, is primarily looking at um, applications of insect protein and pet food, uh, as well as in other markets where insects are widely consumed. So while we do think that more and more Canadians will be eating insects in the future, uh, that is not the primary market that we are targeting at this stage.
0: I should mention you won that competition, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, that was a pretty remarkable achievement because it involved, you know, 10,000 teams from 180 countries. And we actually remain the only Canadian company to have won that prize.
0: Wow. So tell me about this new facility that, that is opening. It, it sounds remarkable. I gather it's either the largest or one of the largest in the world of its kind.
2: That's right. Yeah. So this facility has been many years in the making. Obviously, when we first won the the prize, that gave us the seed capital, a million dollars to launch our business. And that's a pretty significant amount of money. But at the same time, we also were very much embarking on a new journey where we're not only building a new company, but we're effectively laying down the foundation of building a new industry. And so that meant there was just a lot of research and development, a lot of trial and error, a lot of biological experimentation, like understanding what is the best way to grow crickets? How do we feed them? What do we feed them? Uh, How do they grow? What are the right environmental conditions? And most importantly, doing all of this at a pilot scale is one thing. But doing it at a commercial scale where you can actually make this a modular system that you could copy and paste and build anywhere in the world, that was the real challenge. And so after years of research and development, all this culminated in 2019 in us getting ready to transition to this next stage, which is the commercialization stage of our business. And we just finished completing the construction of our factory here in London, Ontario, which is the world's largest cricket production facility. Um, It's about 150,000 square feet, but the most impressive thing is the height of the building. It's a 42-meter structure, so you're talking 140 feet, um, and it's effectively, arguably, the densest protein production system in the world.
0: So after you did the R&D, how do you feed them? How do they grow?
2: Yeah, so one of the things you have to... uh, Uh, introduce into the production system is a significant amount of automation. So, you know, if you think of crickets, they're typically reared inside containers, think of it as a fully enclosed bin. So inside that bin, you want to have all of the food the crickets are going to need for the approximately, you know, 30 day period where they grow from hatch to harvest weight. Um, You want to have the water they're going to drink, you want to have enough of a climbing surface for them to, you know, move around for them to be able to uh, travel easily within that within that uh, environment. And most importantly, you want to make sure the environmental conditions are optimized so the right temperature, the right humidity, uh, the right air circulation. All of these things are very finely tuned and calibrated. And in order to really identify, you know, what is the right temperature at day four at three o'clock in the afternoon, given that the metabolic needs of a one week old cricket are very different than a two week old than a three week old. It really comes down to data. And that's why, you know, over the years, we've accumulated a massive library of data where we're able to very granularly understand all of these different parameters I just described. And this facility is truly state-of-the-art. We are going to be collecting something like 30 million data points every single day using applied machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually optimize our production because we can be able to now know exactly what is the right temperature we should use at a specific day at a specific time Uh, and we leverage an enormous amount of robotics and automation to convey and move uh, uh, crickets throughout the facility.
0: You're also creating jobs though I know that not just automation but there are people working there right you've created jobs in the London area?
2: That's right, yeah. So we expect to have 100 people full time in the next few months. And the exciting thing for me is not just that, you know, new jobs are being created, which in and of itself is is very positive. But the kind of jobs, I mean, these are mostly STEM jobs, and many of them are careers that never existed before. I mean, if you think about it, most people who go to university to do a PhD in entomology, many of them often either continue in academia or end up going to work in industry to figure out how to efficiently kill insects (laughs) from a pest control perspective. But to now be creating jobs where you're inspiring scientists to think of new and more creative ways to grow healthier, better crickets that's a very exciting thing. And we're seeing just this new generation of not just the quantity of jobs, but the very quality of jobs that we're also bringing to the table.
0: There must have been some some hits and misses during your R&D process. What are some of the successes and some of the, uh, the learning moments that you had over that time?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a saying that good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> and so, We've definitely had our fair share of ups and downs, and that's part and parcel of what we're doing. We knew from day one that what we're doing has never been done before, which means, by definition, there's going to be mistakes, there's going to be slip ups, and what mattered wasn't that we we have a perfected process. What mattered was that we had to be more stubborn than the problems we faced throughout our journey. And so, I'll give you an example. I described in the beginning, you know, a few minutes ago, that um, a, a big part of our process hinges on having a fully contained uh, enclosure where the crickets are reared, right? So you have, let's think of it as a fully enclosed bin. And the bin is the size of a pallet. And you can have about 30,000 crickets in a bin and think of that as like one housing system. And we have like almost 100,000 of those in our facility. So the challenge for us in the early days was to figure out how do you how do you give everything to the crickets that they need, and fully enclose it so that you don't need to, on a daily basis, come back, open the lid, add food, add water, which can obviously not only add to your operating costs, but can actually not be good for the crickets. It's very stressful to keep, you know, opening the lids, adding things and removing things and so on. So in the very early, early days, we tried to do this and, and experimentally, and it was a complete disaster. We came back at the end of a month and, you know, to harvest the crickets and it was just the whole thing uh, did not work out. And that's when we realized that we had to really deconstruct every single one of those variables and work on it in isolation and improve it for a 30 day period, and then come in the very end and bring it all together, which was a process that took the better part of six years. So uh, I'm not exaggerating when I say that it was quite a journey from a research and development perspective. And a lot of resources were poured into this, uh, including most recently, of course, um, uh, support that we've received from the Canadian government, which was a very attractive part of what, uh, what, what drew, drew us to uh, building our facility in London, Ontario.
0: This may sound like a ridiculous question, but what does that many crickets sound like?
2: You know, it is It is actually a good question. In fact, I'll tell you the funny thing. When we first announced that we're building our facility here in London, I got this email from like a homeowners association, not far from where our building is. And it was very much like, you know, hey, on the one hand, we love innovation, super thrilled to hear about this kind of cool stuff coming to London. On the other hand, we have a lot of questions. So <laughs> I, I went, and I, I went and, I, and I met with these homeowners, right? And, I, and of course, one of the questions they asked is, you know, um, is this going to be a noisy neighborhood like our home price is going to plunge because nobody's going to want to live next to this cricket farm and uh, the answer is no so uh, uh, crickets actually only chirp when they're sexually mature and it's only male crickets that chirp and in our facility a very small percentage of the crickets will actually be used to breed which means only a very small percentage will grow to reach sexual maturity Uh, and of those obviously about half are, are male uh, so the sound is only a sound you would hear in the building and only if you're really near the production area. And it's a ra- rather calming and, and soothing sound. I'm in my office right now in the building and I don't hear anything. So, uh, you know, when you say you hear crickets, uh, it's more metaphorical than literal in this case.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, I'm sure they were happy to hear that. So so what's next? This, this, you'll start here. Pet food is mostly what you're looking at. Uh, where we, Where would you hope to go from here?
2: Yeah, you know it's it's a really it's a really exciting uh, prospect. I mean, obviously, this goes back to why I left medical school in the beginning. I left medical school because I believe that we are on a path and on a trajectory to produce one of the most effective, nutritious protein sources at an incredibly affordable value that can actually address hunger in many parts of the world where insects are already widely consumed, but currently either unaffordable, unavailable or inaccessible. And so our, our conviction long term is that we will be able to not only create a protein source that addresses some of the shortages of protein we see in other supply chains and in other markets like pet food and uh, and certain feed and human food applications, but ultimately seeing this as a, um, as, as a real solution to addressing food security and hunger problems in countries around the world uh, where, where insects are, are already embraced culturally, and where there is a significant uh, uh, and, and sustained lack of access to safe, affordable, and nutritious food. So my hope is that over the next decade, we will have, you know, dozens of these facilities built around the world in markets and close to markets where this protein is already widely consumed in a number of different industries, and where Canada becomes an exporter of not just Protein, but an exporter of technology that provides countries and communities with the ability to sustain themselves. And that's where the conversation transitions from just food security to food sovereignty.
0: Mohammed, my last question for you was going to be Did you ever go back to med school? But you already answered that for me. Thank you so much for your time. What a fascinating project. Look forward to, uh, to hearing an update on it.
2: Thank you so much, Ben. It was a pleasure. <laughs>
0: 24 hours can be a lifetime in politics, and what's just unfolded in Britain is testament to that. There were deafening cries for Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign yesterday as more than 50 ministers and officials quit his government and told him to go. He refused. Well, today the usually unshakable Johnson changed his tune.
2: It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks.
0: Them's the breaks. His exit was neither particularly graceful, certainly not apologetic. And he is planning on sticking around until a new party leader can be named, probably in the fall. We'll see what that if that unfolds that way, a lot of folks are a little bit worried about that. Joining me now is Global Mail Europe correspondent Paul Waldy with more. Thanks for your time. Hi there. Well, David Cameron once uh, compared Boris Johnson back from their Oxford days as slippery as a greased pig. Uh, it seems the fates finally caught up with him today. Was No surprise, I imagine.
3: Well, no surprise, but it sure took a lot to get him out of office. He dragged this out for a good two days. And it looked for a moment that, that he was going to try and cling to power in some strange way as cabinet minister after cabinet minister, quit all around him and told him he had to go, he finally relented this morning. And really, even in his closing statement, her statement sort of announcing his retirement or resignation, he took some shots at uh, some of his critics and said, you know, he was the victim of herd mentality and that really he had tried to tell them this wasn't a good time to change leaders because the government was doing so well. So it was kind of an odd backhanded way of leaving
0: yeah, he talked about sort of the Darwinian structure and the eccentric rule. I mean, it wasn't exactly a, a gracious departure, at least uh, vis-a-vis his own party.
3: No, it wasn't. And you can tell he has real resentment and real anger about being forced out of office, which which isn't surprising given his nature.
0: It, what it was his ultimate downfall? I mean, three years ago, uh, less than three years ago, actually, he won with uh, the biggest landslide the Conservatives have seen since the Thatcher years. And uh, he doesn't get to celebrate his three-year anniversary in power. He's gone. It's... Uh, It's it's it it has been quite the downfall.
3: It really has. And I think you have to look at the pandemic played a a big factor in this. You know, he wasn't great at administering the pandemic. He did roll out a very good vaccination program, but there were an awful lot of problems along the way. Then it didn't help that there were revelations that he and his officials were holding all kinds of parties when the rest of the country was in lockdown. And then there was a recent kind of series of scandals, including one involving the deputy chief whip who'd been caught up on allegations of sexual assault. And that suggestion there was that Boris Johnson kind of knew about these rumors, but went ahead and gave him this position anyway. So there were a lot of things building, building, building. And then you had these two by-election defeats in June that were really substantial and and pretty, pretty uh, devastating to the conservative party. And I think for a lot of Tory MPs, that was kind of the last straw. And it was time really for them to, to tell Boris he had to go.
0: Yeah, I guess he'd really become a a liability to the party. Uh, Ultimately, I guess, I mean, his nature and his, uh, let's call it, liberal relationship with the truth had always been well-known, even when he was mayor of London and so forth. Um, What do you think brought him down when he reached the top job? Was it it just his inability to sort of say, okay, I'm going to stay disciplined, the rules apply to me, and I'm going to lead by example? Do you think that's where it went wrong?
3: I think that's part of it. I think, you know, the, the Boris charm and the Boris magic that had seen him through so much of his political career and seen him weather so many scandals and storms that would have done in any other politician easily, that kind of started to wear off. And I think the the revelations of the, what they call party gate really damaged an awful lot of the credibility and the perception of him in the public's eyes really began to fell, fall off this winter and spring as more and more things came out. So I think he was starting to become a liability. And of course, the Conservative Party in Britain really has, uh, wastes no time in getting rid of leaders if they become a liability.
0: Yeah, he's, he's the, he, the new one will be the fourth. Uh, and they haven't lost power since. It's remarkable in a parliamentary system to see a party have what will now be four four leaders uh, without having lost power
3: to the next election. With all of this, this massive majority, this gigantic majority, that he won them in 2019. Circumstances were very different. He campaigned solely on Brexit, Brexit done. And. At that point, the country was really fed up with the whole debate, and, and gave him this overwhelming mandate to do that. Um, but you know, things changed very quickly, as as they often do in politics.
0: So, what now for the conservatives? I realize that it's may, may not it might get a bit messy if if he can't form a government. But but uh, there will be at some point a new leader in place. I gather in the fall, if all goes according to Boris Johnson's plan.
3: Well, it's yeah, it's out of his hands entirely now. And in fact, there's lots of people saying he shouldn't stick around at all. He wants to stay until the new leader is, is sworn in. But, he, you know, there's a lot of people saying he shouldn't. It's a pretty fast process. Um, the uh, the way it works is the conservative members of parliament will vote amongst themselves and pick two candidates. Those two candidates will be put out to a vote to party members. And it will all be done by certainly by the end of August. And you could have a new prime minister in place in early September. So it's a quick process. The problem this time, though, last time this happened, Boris Johnson was the clear favorite and it wasn't even close. This time, there is no clear favorite at all. If anything, there's kind of a collection of cabinet ministers that are kind of known to the public, but not very well, and certainly not nowhere near the profile that Boris Johnson had.
0: You know, I think I was thinking back to when a lot of Canadians may have sort of first seen Boris Johnson when he first arrived on our radar, and it really was 10 years ago at the 2012 London Olympics. So what for him now? What do you think happens to Boris Johnson?
3: That'll be really interesting to see whether he stays as an MP, whether he runs in the next election, whether he tries to come back. You never know with Boris Johnson. He may stick around and try and run for the leadership again. He's not that uh, he's certainly not that old. He's only 58. So he's got lots of time to to rebuild and and try again.
0: Any thoughts on I mean, it might be a bit early, but any thoughts on his legacy? Uh, It's going to be an interesting one. I was looking back. I mean, there have been a lot of British prime ministers who've served shorter terms than he did. But not many. I mean, Gordon Brown would have been the last one, but uh, there's sort of a long list of kind of what are seen as less successful prime ministers. If you look at the tenure, in his case, less than three years.
3: Well, I mean, there's no doubt Brexit will be the, the the legacy and the one thing that will always be associated with Boris Johnson. He not only co-led the campaign, the Yes side campaign in the 2016 referendum, he became the guiding force for Brexit in the Conservative Party. And when he became leader in 2019, after doing in Theresa May, he really brought Brexit to the forefront. And he did get it done. I mean, you you have to give him credit that within the space of a few months, he did what Theresa May couldn't do in two years. And he got Brexit over the line. He got a negotiation, a deal negotiated. And for better or worse, Brexit is in place and there's no going back. And I think that will be his legacy um, forever.
0: Does he leave Britain and his party in a better or worse place than when he got there (laughs) a few years ago?
3: Well, it's hard to say about Britain because so much has happened in the pandemic and Brexit. You really don't know where. The economy is headed or the country is headed. I think it's, it's up in the air. There's certainly a lot of tensions with Scotland uh, and in Northern Ireland that certainly will be part of his legacy as well. But I think that for the Conservative Party, they're in a much tougher position now. They don't have uh, an established leader. They don't have someone who can really uh, drive the kind of party forward into the next election. And the last two by-elections were a real indicator that in many parts of the country or certain parts of the country, where the conservatives used to be strong, they're not anymore. And I think it'll be a real challenge for the conservative party in the next elections. The one thing they have going for them is the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Stammer, is not, again, exactly, uh, you know, a household name and somebody who people rally around. So they do have that going for them, but it's going to be much, much tougher.
0: Paul Waldi, thanks so much for your time. I'm, it's gonna be busy days for you, I'm sure.
3: Sure, glad to.